Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that when we're all forced into tears, you may as well laugh through them. I'm Tiernan Duyab and this week, as Conservative MPs have demanded more evidence for the Covid tier system, oh I see, now they want evidence for something. The worst is over, according to Prime Minister and haha, they put a pig in a burlap sack dress, Boris Johnson, though chances are very high he was just quoted as he left the toilet. Data shows that coronavirus infections have fallen by a third thanks to the lockdown, so it's great news that that is ending this week in order to give the virus just one more chance because, hey, not even germs want to be made redundant before Christmas. Judging by the history of whenever Boris Johnson has assured us things were fixed or done or would be over by Christmas, there is every chance that him saying the worst is over means that there'll be a third wave in the new year. Though, like the experiment of the very same name, this one will have us all accepting the virus as our new leader without question. God knows it has far more conviction and drive than our current one. It's just so very hard to believe it when phrases like that are uttered by people like Johnson or indeed the health secretary and frightened butterbean Matt Hancock, who said in the daily briefing on Monday that the virus is now back under control. Matt Hancock can barely control the security settings on his own app. How on earth can he control the virus? And wasn't Brexit about taking back control? And at the moment, they can't even agree on how fish work. So the health secretary announcing that the virus is under control just fills the mind with images of him shouting, don't worry, I got this, as he's engulfed by a giant shark after his plan to pay someone in a completely landlocked country to find shark repellent has failed. The new COVID tier restrictions kick in this week and you might want to know what tier your area is in. Well, according to the official online postcode checker last week, I'm in tier 404, which does sound extreme. And I blame the man down the road who refuses to wear a mask to Sainsbury's. But it turned out it was just the website acting in accordance with everything the government does, crashing and failing within minutes of starting a job. Luckily, there was an easy way to tell what your tier actually is. For example, do you live south of Birmingham? Then chances are you can live your best antisocial life. But any north of that, and especially if your mayor has pissed the government right off, then they're keen to let you know that by levelling up, they just meant it's tier three for the rest of your life. This might seem at odds with the narrative many in the cabinet have been pushing about investment in the north, but actually by making sure people there 
there can't do anything for even longer. More of them will survive the Covid wars than down south, so when it's all done they can just pop down and take everything. There are exceptions to this rule though, with Liverpool being the star of the week in Tier 2, apparently due to hard work, which I'm sure the government will reward by making many of them unemployed. Kent is in Tier 3, including Tunbridge Wells, which has some of the lowest infection rates in the country. Having been there though, a lot of people in Tunbridge Wells do deserve to be kept indoors for as long as possible. Your tier is not your destiny, Johnson told the country. Every area has the means of escape, because it seems the reality is he's made all of this up based on an escape room he did in a stag do once. There are around 70 Conservative MPs who aren't that keen on the new rules, including the turtle kid from Robin Hood, Steve Baker, and they've demanded data and analysis justifying the restrictions before MPs vote on them on Tuesday, an attitude it had been really nice for Steve Baker to have when he stalled the Brexit impact report back in 2017. I bet Steve Baker was the sort of kid who'd demand you show him yours while he popped an extra pair of pants on and accused you of being a pervert for asking you to show him his. I'm only joking, no one has ever, ever wanted to see Steve's. The big question was, would the backbenchers be able to see the evidence if it was shown to them, or would it be a blur and instantly replaced in their minds by their own preferences? More importantly, if Boris Johnson presented the evidence, would it still be evidence, or just something he's drawn on a beer mat in crayon, and would he understand it himself, or just try to eat it? The report was released and appears to suggest that the way tiers were evaluated were the ones that they previously mentioned, with R-rate, NHS risk, and if they thought the mayor was a prick. Okay, not the last one. But it didn't say what the economic impact could be, and if they were upset the mayor had spoken back to them. Okay, not the last one. But it did say that it would affect mental health, and it didn't say what the economic impact would be. The Covid recovery group, led by Baker, have said it's rather less substantial than they'd have hoped for, so based on Baker's record, they'll hurriedly vote it through and hope no one asks any questions. Sorry, I mean by the time you hear this, they might have voted against it. But luckily Her Majesty's opposition Labour plan to thwart the government by voting for everything they're proposing, so it'll definitely pass and that'll show them or something. The Prime Minister has warned of a New Year's lockdown if regional restrictions don't work, so hopefully his team doing everything they can to not change anything at all will definitely, definitely work this time. OK, that's not true. They have changed some things. For example, alcohol in Tier 2 and Tier 3 can only be served if part of a substantial meal, which I think means you can just have a pint of Guinness by itself. The Environment Secretary and angry stupid neighbour in a sitcom, George Eustace, insisted on the radio that a scotch egg is probably a substantial meal if brought to you by table service, which must be because the sheer embarrassment of having waiting staff bring you a single sausage ovum would really cut down your appetite. On the same interview rounds, Eustace told the BBC that the Prime Minister was working very hard to reassure everyone that he doesn't want restrictions in place for any longer than is necessary, which we know isn't true as A, he's never worked hard at anything, and B, if that was true, then the lifting of restrictions over Christmas would be stricter than basically allowing everyone to go out and lick each other for Jesus. From the 23rd of December till the 27th, three households can form a Christmas bubble, which will no doubt be like a snow globe, but if you shake it, Covid particles create a scene. Shops are going to be allowed to stay open for 24 hours to give people more time to catch COVID if they have to work during the day and they don't want to miss out on Christmas shopping being even less enjoyable than it usually is. Though I suppose at least you'd always leave with something. Though I suppose at least you'd always leave with something for someone. Sage has recommended some tips for a safer Christmas day that includes celebrating outdoors, which you can do by telling children the final advent calendar door is the big one at the front of your home and then open it up on Christmas day and shove them out of it. They suggest no touching, no games or rowdy singing, which should mean your uncle will have no reason to come over anyway. 
Playing quizzes over board games is also recommended, perhaps because we've all seen the damage a heated drive to win at Monopoly can have during a pandemic. And Chief Medical Officer and Stewie Griffin in the future, Chris Whitty, said that he'd not encourage anyone to kiss and hug their elderly relative if you want them to survive being hugged again. So there's some incentive for anyone waiting on inheritance. I see you, Prince Charles. I see you. The Prime Minister tweeted a letter to him from a boy aged eight called Monty, asking if Santa can deliver presents this year. No doubt the second letter tucked behind the one asking his dad if he'll come home for Christmas or if he's spending it with one of his other 15 families. Johnson wrote back saying he'd put a call into the North Pole, presumably to warn Father Christmas that if he tried to enter England via the Channel, he'd be sent back to France. The Prime Minister told Monty that leaving hand sanitizer by the cookies is a good idea, and let's face it, if St Nick drinks that, it should kill off most things, including him. Still, it's a nice thing for Johnson to do, and I'm sure just by watching the government's policies in action, Monty will see that many, many people will still be getting the sack this winter. In Wales, they've just announced a ban on alcoholic sales entirely and pubs to close from 6pm, which I think means daytime drinking at home is now the law. Let's be fair, that is the Christmas rule anyway, but it's really nice to have it in writing. I suppose you could consider that the government are banking all their hopes on a workable vaccine popping up in time to curb the festive fever spreading. But if that's the case, why appoint definitive stupid henchman Nadim Zawahi as the vaccine rollout minister? Did Johnson misread part of the job title as rollover? Zawahi is best known for using taxpayers' money to heat his private riding school and abuse of the idea that Tories are for a stable economy. Only recently, when insisting children didn't need free school meals in the holidays, Zawahi said kids in poverty needed activities more than they needed food. Because, you know, if they're well fed, it just hinders their ability to chimney sweep, doesn't it? They can't quite fit inside. On appointment to the role, Nadim Zawahi said it would be a big responsibility and a big operational challenge. But on the plus side, he'll be so busy, I'm guessing he won't need to eat for weeks. If he somehow manages to roll out the vaccine and not just deliver it to the National Honor Society in America, then how to get people to take it when so many are sceptical about injecting themselves with something they're so unsure of the contents of? No, sadly it doesn't work by ingestion, or you could just make it a horrible colour and pop it in an Alcopop bottle, and everyone in Britain would want it every five minutes during happy hour. Apparently the big NHS plan is to enlist celebrities to drive take-up. And I trust the vaccine, but if I see one advert with the man who in 30 years everyone will say, oh god, yes, I guess we should have known it was very obvious all along, David Williams, saying the doctor gave him one up his bum and then the vaccine and he feels great, then I'll pray to all the gods I don't believe in that there are some really horrific side effects. Speaking of people the media insist you have to like, even though you're only pleased they're on telly as it means you know where they are and it's nowhere near you, the Chancellor and Smitty from Dumbo, Rishi Sunak, announced his spending review last week, which he said would deliver on the priorities of the British people. And I do wonder why it's constantly top of our list to insist that everything gets much, much worse. The economy is set to be in the most awful state it's been in in 300 years, which does fit quite nicely with us also having a plague, a sort of war with Europe and an Australian immigration system. We are one politician throwing their piss out of the window onto the streets away from this being a large-scale historical enactment. It's likely that finances won't return to pre-crisis levels till 2022, but it's unsure if Rishi Sunak meant the coronavirus crisis or the 1720 South Sea bubble one. The big announcements were an increase in government spending on tackling coronavirus by £55 billion more on public services next year, so it's nice to know one of their friends will get a big contract to not meet councils and just send them bits of broken equipment they found in a skip. 
Sunak has said the private sector has suffered wage compression, so for fairness, the public sector is having to have a pay freeze. What kind of fairness is that? Someone lost at the coconut shy, so for fairness, we'll rig it so no one else can win. For real fairness, the private sector should have their wages frozen for eight years to balance out austerity, and the public sector get given loads of contracts for things that they'll ruin for tons of cash. I mean, Sunak should just hand over Amazon deliveries to librarians who can at least actually inform you about the book you've bought, and BP can be taken over by sewage maintenance because they're used to dealing with pipes and hazardous shit. The living wage, which used to be the minimum wage, but then the government decided you could live off a single scotch egg, has been increased to still not be enough to be a living wage. But then what is a living wage if it's not forcing you to constantly live in the moment thanks to a lack of security for the future? And the overseas aid budget has been cut from 0.7% of GDP to just 0.5%, which does still help the world's poorest, as now even more of them will be disassociated from the UK and have an instant reputation upgrade as a result. Sunak said the country should be judged not by the money we spend, but by the causes we advance. So I guess everyone should know us as the place that sells Saudi Arabia weapons to bomb children in Yemen with. The Festival of Brexit Britain is being given £29 million in funding so it can showcase the best of British art, culture and tech, which by 2022, when it happens, will just be one person needing two jobs in order to sustain a third in the arts. This spending review, Sunak said, will see the individual, the family and the community becoming stronger because breaking rocks as part of a chain gang will really work all our muscles. And oddly, Brexit wasn't even mentioned once, even though in less than five weeks it would definitely be a thing that will definitely affect the economy. Did Rishi Sunak forget? Or does he think that you deal with a bear market like you do an actual bear and just stay very quiet and hopes it goes away when it realises there's no food except a poultry scotch egg? The Chancellor will personally be fine, whatever happens, thanks to his wife's financial investments being worth millions of pounds that Sunak failed to declare under ministerial interests. Sunak's wife, Akshata Murti, has got more money than the Queen, but still hasn't got her face on any of it, so that has got to hurt. I wonder if she's just trying to get enough that they give in and pop her on a fiver, and then she'll give up. The government ethics watchdog is being urged to investigate if this admittance from his registered interests is a breach of ministerial code by Sunak, so we can expect them to very much not do that, and then the Prime Minister to say that Sunak's wife is only rich unintentionally. In other news, the Foreign Secretary in Siri showed me what it would be like if Pixar animated a dildo, Dominic Raab, said that the UK is in the last leg of Brexit negotiations, though it's not clear if he meant it's at the end of the race or if we're about to fall over after exhausting everything we had left. This, however, should be the last week of talks as long as the areas of fishing and competition are resolved. And of course, those two areas are the only ones left because the UK government always insists on being slippery when it comes to creating a level playing field for anyone. Scotland's First Minister, an extra from a 1980s advert for gas heating, Nicola Sturgeon, addressed the SNP conference, saying that people should use the Covid crisis as a catalyst for change. Though I'm sure mutations in the virus are a big part of the problem, so that probably won't work. What she meant, though, was Scottish independence, saying that the case for it is even stronger than before, which I agree, but mainly because I like the idea of Home Secretary and hangnail but made human Pretty Patel suddenly not even be able to travel Great Britain due to border control. That makes me very, very happy. The First Minister also announced a one-off thank you payment of £500 to all NHS and adult social care staff, which is just ridiculous, as there's no way that's as useful as just some clapping on a Thursday night. Sure, sure, they can buy stuff, but as if that'll be as rewarding as dealing with the man who burned himself setting off fireworks to show off to neighbours how much he loves the NHS before shouting racist abuse at you for stopping him bleeding to death. Come on, Nicola, Jesus. 
Last week, Scotland became the first nation in the world to make period products free for those who need them, abolishing period poverty, which has been made much worse by coronavirus. The scheme won't be means-tested and local councils will absorb the outgoings regardless of how heavy they are, which seems quite appropriate. Across the pond, tiny-eyed snow cone Joe Biden has won the US election again after current president and world's biggest friction blister Donald Trump's vote recounts showed Biden winning by even more in Wisconsin than they thought before. It cost Trump $3 million just to find out that he's an even bigger loser, which is absolutely amazing, and by that level of failure, there's every chance the British government will hire him to provide PPE or find a ferry firm any day now. Trump has admitted the US presidency transition to Biden has to begin, and Biden has named all of his senior staff, though of course to him they're actually all juniors. He's appointed a large number of women in top roles, which is a proper progressive change for the White House, where for the last four years many of the only women there were to sign NDAs. Biden injured himself on Sunday by twisting his ankle playing with his dog, but that is what you voted for, America, so you have to deal with it. You could have kept Trump, who only ever twisted the truth constantly and looked dogged. But hey, that's the bed you made for yourselves, and it's your choice if you don't want a man who would have paid someone to piss in it first. And lastly, Culture Secretary and Extra from Postman Pat Oliver Dowden has criticised the Netflix drama The Crown by saying it should carry a warning to let viewers know that its portrayal of the royal family isn't entirely factual. Yes, Oliver, that is how drama works. Olivia Colman isn't actually the Queen, even though her face is easily in as many places. If he's that worried about inaccurate content, then maybe Dowden should write to the Prime Minister and demand that before every single speech he does, there's a disclaimer to make clear it's largely fiction. Hey, Pod Warriors, how are you? Um, it is very, very misty where I am today, and it was hard not to walk my daughter to nursery entirely on tiptoes like a Victorian criminal or Jacob Rees-Mogg. I should really have worn a cloak and a top hat, but I think turning up to the nursery like that might have uh, caused problems. Anyway, I hope you're coping with your tier settings. I am in tier two, uh, aka the lack of ideas tier, where it's like someone's put a small warning sign a few metres in front of a big hole and decided that'll be enough to make sure no one falls in it, um, even though they can't see it from most of the sides. If you are in, that's a very long analogy, isn't it? Probably shorter analogies tier, and that would really help. We'll, we'll try that now next time um if you are in tier three uh, my sympathies but hey at least you don't have to see anyone before christmas and come on that is a win right i'm delighted in the lack of plans i have and my family have all decided not even to do presents this year because well money so i don't have to stress about any present buying which is a massive joy honestly i think this could catch on you know a christmas is actually relaxing for once no who am i kidding it'll still include my daughter sorry agent trying to pull down the tree and her current favorite thing is to take all her clothes off and sit on the radiator when it's on shouting hot bum quite a lot which is very funny but it makes me even more pleased that we can't have visitors because that would be highly inappropriate um, also, I say I'm delighted, uh, but actually it's quite hard to be excited about even more staying in and watching telly, isn't it? You're like Normally, by this point, it's like, God, that's all I need to fix me. And now it's like, I think, I think I've had enough this year. Well, at least we'll have a tree so I can pretend we're outside when we're not. Are you planning to see people at Christmas? Uh, my parents are likely now immune after getting COVID a few weeks ago, so I think we can go see them. And we're trying to work out a way to see the in-laws if none of us breathe all day or we all stand in the rain or something. Um, but, you know, actually outside not just inside with a tree. Uh, we probably won't do that. It's tricky, isn't it, all of this? I still haven't really worked out how to explain to my daughter, sorry, agent, that Father Christmas is going to have to leave presents at the door and then stand at least two metres back when we collect them at three in the morning. I think that's how it's going to work. I've really no idea if reindeer are contagious, but the red nose suggests it's a common cold rather than COVID, so I think Rudolph is probably fine. Uh, all very difficult. Um, thank you lot once again for being here, and this week a big thank you to T for donating to the ACAR supporter page, uh, Roz for upping their Patreon donation, and Christine for the Kofi donation 
Foundation too. Um, if you have loose change, because I don't know, you've got immensely baggy pockets or you use a windsock for a purse, I mean, firstly, that's very careless. You're going to lose a lot of money like that. But if you do, then please do fling me enough for a fancy festive coffee that I probably won't go into a shop to buy. Um, and you can do that at the ACAR supporter button on the app, the ko-fi.com forward slash bro page, or join the patreon.com forward slash bro. And obviously, if you can't do that, then just please give the show a lovely five-star review on your podcast apps and tell others that this exists, even if they really wish it didn't. Um, other things this week. Um, I've got a weekend of actual gigs coming up, uh, assuming they're allowed to happen. Who knows? Who knows? Um, I'm going to be at Watford Palace Theatre on December the 12th. Uh, I'm doing a kids gig in the afternoon and I'm hosting the normal comedy club at night, even though I'm not going to remember any jokes. Um, and then the next day I'm doing a kids show at the Walthamstow Trades Hall at 11am with the brilliant Howard Reed on too. Um, I'm going to pop links to all those things in the podcast blurb and you can book a ticket and no doubt get the money straight back as everything shuts down again in a week. Um, the only other thing to say is that after this week I'm planning to do just two more podcasts this year before taking several weeks off. Um, obviously that will depend on if a Brexit deal appears or you know general awfulness um, in which case I'll do a short podcast to cover that. Um, I've also no idea if there's going to be a guest for next week's either because uh, it turns out people just don't like replying to emails anymore. Hey I get that neither do I. Um we'll see what happens apologies if it is just me next week but maybe I'll put on a silly voice for part of it uh, to cheer you up we'll work something out we always do um, on this week's show I'm speaking to journalist and writer Peter Gumbel about his new book Citizens of Everywhere uh, Ruminations on a Post-Brexit World it is as I'll explain later um, a tad ropey sound wise uh, in places please don't write it and tell me I already know I've done everything I can to fix it and it hasn't entirely worked um, if you feel a real need to complain about it maybe just yell something out of your window or write something in pen on an item that you really treasure and shouldn't have pen on it and then put it in the bin and feel sad um, there's also a teeny look at Sunak's spending review where the sound is fine but you can write in and complain about it because let's be fair the spending review was awful <laughs> Do you remember back in 2016 when former Prime Minister, who had the demeanour of a stalactite who'd just realised they were in the wrong check-in queue, Theresa May, said at the Conservative conference that if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere? She didn't mean the small community of nowhere in Oklahoma, as that would have been quite nice, despite there only being a handful of things to do there and a high chance you'd be very bored in a day or two. But what Theresa May pretended that statement meant was a targeting of international companies that avoid tax. But had you been of the canine species, you'd have heard the whistle that said what it actually meant before her policies went on to show the country. From Brexit to Windrush to this week Priti Patel making agreements with France to stop people who are escaping war from coming to the UK where it seems they'll be even less welcome, this country has had a big problem with immigration for quite some time. Thing is, as has been pointed out by historians, sociologists, I mean anyone who's not a big racist, immigration has been a vital part of making Britain what it is. From the Huguenots, and of course the better off Huigs, <laughs> um, in the 17th century, who introduced fan work, you know, without which people couldn't have written their own stories about Doctor Who. And papermaking, uh, without which we wouldn't have all those newspapers today that would have no doubt incited hate towards the Huguenots. More recently, there was the aforementioned Windrush generation who came from all over the Commonwealth to fill the post-war labour shortage and helped staff the NHS, among many other institutions. They were given an instant right to live in the UK as thanks, until Theresa May's government realised just how useful they were in building Britain and that people like that just showed her cabinet up and had to go. I've never really understood borders or nationalism myself, which used to get my schoolwork horribly marked down. 
But having been lucky enough to travel a fair bit, there really is nothing more magical than going somewhere so far away and seeing for yourself that they're exactly the same rubbish but lovely human types you are, but often with a lot better food. As well as usually a realisation that they have trains that actually run on time, are a lot more welcoming and the weather's much nicer, and yet for some reason I still come home at the end. I'm a really big fan of the overview effect that astronauts get when they look back at the Earth for the first time from space and see how clear it is that we're all one planet. Borders can't be seen from space and neither can people not indicating properly or wearing red trousers, and so the astronauts often return to Earth with a new love and understanding of their home. Sadly, it costs a lot of money to send everyone to space, even though I think lots deserve it. And so instead, in 2020, we are in a world where many countries embrace border control, including Brexit having asylum seeker hating Britain, where I almost suspect we're keeping Covid going just so no one can arrive or leave ever again. This week, I spoke to acclaimed journalist and writer Peter Gumbel, who earlier this month released his insightful and thoughtful short book, Citizens of Everywhere, looking at the history of his Jewish grandparents fleeing Germany in the late 30s and being welcomed to England, only for years later him to be receiving German citizenship to escape the constraints of Brexit. Peter spent many years writing for the Wall Street Journal, which led to him working all over the world, and his book is the touching human story that I think has been sorely missed from much of the Brexit debate over the last four years, of just how being able to escape persecution and be welcomed elsewhere can be the reason a family line survives and thrives. I had a really lovely afternoon reading it last week, and it was great to chat to Peter from his home in Paris all about the book, but also his thoughts on just why it's so hard to sell the idea of immigration when it's clearly such a very good thing. Uh, Quick heads up, as I mentioned earlier, the sound is variable in this one. I've run it through several clever but ultimately free programmes, and I think it's okay. but there are moments where Peter sounds less clear than at other times. Turns out Parisian Wi-Fi isn't that great, which is bonkers considering all the brilliant bars you get in that city. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. Here is Peter. Hi, Peter. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I, I loved your book, uh, Citizens of Everywhere. I found it absolutely fascinating, very thoughtful, very moving. And I think one of the things that's been missing, um, I suppose, from both sides of the the Brexit debate, um, but particularly from the Remain side, is, is the kind of personal aspect to it, um, which, which is very much uh, what you bring into your book with the history of your grandparents uh, being from Germany and, and, and emigrating to the UK uh, some years ago. Um, and I just wondered, uh, I suppose, first thing to ask you really is that your insight into the history of your grandparents as well as uh, your career as a, a journalist around the world that's given you a unique appreciation of the benefits of immigration um do you think now that it's been 70 years since sort of world war Two, when we had a last big kind of populist crisis and, and lots of emigration for for very specific reasons um is our current situation exacerbated by the loss of direct knowledge of the dangers of nationalism from those who've experienced it but but also their descendants I think that's absolutely correct, that uh, we are living in a period of really unprecedented peace and prosperity. We've had such a long run, such a great run, certainly in the UK and in Western Europe, and also in Eastern Europe with the collapse of the Berlin Wall and uh, the very rapid increase in prosperity. And to a large extent, we have lost that uh, fear of incredible dislocation and uh, Horrors of war, and I think if I was look as I was looking back at, at my own family's history, I was thinking that memory has now become history, um, and because we've lost that memory, there's the danger that we can go and repeat the mistakes that our ancestors actually made. And one of the things that I, I found most moving about researching my family's history was to see some pretty 
unpleasant parallels between what happened in the 1930s in Nazi Germany and what is happening around the world, including in the UK today. Not that I want to draw a parallel, not that I'm saying that they're the same, but I'm saying that the attack on institutions, the destabilizing of the press as being enemies of the people, for example, these are very worrying signs that uh, we have already lived through, uh, but you forgot. You know, without going into the book too much, uh, as I do want listeners to, to grab a copy, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but your, obviously your grandparents didn't have a, a choice. They had to uh, leave Germany uh, before the war. Um, but, you know, I I, I wondered it, now, now when, when there's so, so much, when there has been so much free movement across the world and there has been, uh, you know, travel for so many years, as we discussed, I, I, I wondered why it's so hard to kind of, relay the pros of a borderless world and immigration to so many when we're, we're currently able to experience it by choice. Why, you know, I, I think you, you're, you're able to explain in your book, the benefits that happen that, that your family gained from it, simply uh, being able to escape uh, the rather horrific situation of world war two. But why is it so hard now for us to say why this is so good? Well, let me, let me just back up for a second uh, without giving away the, the whole plot of the book. Uh, it's important to understand that uh, what it's about is that my grandparents um, were very highly assimilated Germans with Jewish backgrounds who lived in Germany and, and, and in a very prosperous environment in Germany in the 1930s. Um, and they didn't realize that they were in danger until it was almost too late. And they just managed to get out in 1939, really at the last, last minute. And they arrived in the UK, which they saw as this great beacon of hope and safety. Um, and they loved the values of tolerance and respect, and they became naturalized British citizens after the war, and they built a great life. Um, and that cycle of history I am now closing by, because of Brexit, applying and have received a German passport. I've become a German citizen, uh, partly to live in the U- in, not only in the UK, but also to be able to live and work in the rest of Europe, but also partly out of principle, because I'm worried that the very ideas and values of of tolerance, of openness, are on the wane and are being eroded in the UK. And they are very much ones that uh, I hold to very dearly. They're vital for my family. So that's the that's the spoiler alert. Having said that, having said that, I think to your question, it's a very good one because the narrative around immigration is completely wrong. It's completely wrong that actually immigration is a force for dynamism, for growth, for renewal, which are all of these things are incredibly important. And we are somehow in this situation today with uh, all this talk about national exceptionalism and you know, these bloody foreigners coming and sponging off us. We, we're in this situation where we are no longer looking at immigration as being this incredible force for good. I mean, if you look at the UK, they're fantastic stories of immigrants coming and making a great life, starting, of course, with the royal family. I mean, Queen Victoria, you know, she was from the House of Hanover, which went back to George I, uh, and her husband, uh, Prince Albert, was from Saxa Gotha Coburg. Uh, you know, very good German stock. Prince Philip, you know, came from Greece, he was born in Corfu. We've forgotten all this. Um, I don't obviously want to just use the royal family as an example, but... Uh, if you, look at, if you look at immigrants, there's some really interesting statistics. There, actually, one came out just the other day from Germany, which is that one quarter of all the companies 
that were created in the last year in Germany were created by people of Turkish descent who moved um, as guest workers to Germany in the 1960s. Of course, the most famous are this couple who uh, created uh, the biotech company, BioNTech, which has developed the vaccine against COVID. So, you know, right there is a fantastic example. And I don't want to, you know, flog this horse too much to its death, but if you look at uh, Silicon Valley, another great example, uh, there's some really reliable statistics that show that just over half of all the startups in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years have at least one founder who came from an immigrant background. So what I'm saying is immigration is incredibly important, really good. Uh, and we are in this very terrible narrative that they're somehow all sponges and terrible and we need to shut the doors to them. Quite wrong. I mean, it must feel strange. You've been a journalist and you've lived everywhere. I'm speaking to you currently in Paris. Um you know, where, where you now live. And as you said, you're now a German citizen as well. It, 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 you know, does, does it feel odd to you as someone that's travelled everywhere? Um, in fact, I should ask really, you know, you've travelled everywhere. Have you ever felt like you didn't belong somewhere? Because I, I suppose for me, I'm, I'm a comedian. I've travelled all over the world. And I think one of the most exciting things is I get to turn up to places and people are often really welcoming. And I've been all over the world and generally thought, you know what, people are the same everywhere aside from language barriers. But... I think had I stayed in one place for all of my life, I might not have realised, I might have perhaps been more susceptible to, to othering or or thinking that immigrants are, you know, some sort of other type of people. And, and I, I, you know, I wondered if that's part of it as well, just a misunderstanding of, you know, that we're people of the world as opposed to people in a specific place. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely right. The One of the great achievements, in, in fact, of the last 30 years has been this surge in mobility. We are able to live, to work, to travel all over the place, study your students in particular. Uh, and that's pretty new, actually. It's, uh, it wasn't like that 40, 50 years ago. It's something that has progressively uh, advanced. And now we are in this situation where we really can move. I mean, obviously, COVID has put a break to that. But to a large extent, we'll go back to that, to the ability to move around. And if you look at things like uh, migration within Europe, for example, uh, the numbers of people moving country to work in another country has doubled in the last 15 years. And so, and that's actually fantastic. Why not have the opportunity to live and work? And, you know, everybody in Britain loves to go and do their holidays in, you know, in, in Spain or, or in Portugal. And uh, if you think of what life was like before the, the easy jets and the Ryanairs and that made that possible, you know, it was different. Everybody went to Blackpool, which is not quite the same, frankly. Um, not, nothing against Blackpool, but the sun's not quite so warm. But I think the point being that we are living at a time when this mobility has become possible. And it's not just mobility of people. It's also mobility of goods and services and finance. You know, it, it's, it's what, I hate to use the terrible word globalization, but it's what globalization is all about. Things have got much easier. It's got much easier to move around everything. And some of the effects of that are incredibly positive. I remember when I was growing up, people used to agonize about the third world and you know, everybody dying of hunger. Um, and now, you know, no one talks about the third world. It's one of these things, don't, don't use that phrase. And in the meantime, more than 1 billion people have been lifted out of extreme poverty just in the last 25 years, according to the World Bank, uh, a lot of them in China. And Places like China and India are not only not dying of hunger, but they're starting to eat our lunch. You know, so I think what we're seeing here is 
an incredible change, incredible dynamism, incredible growth. And I can understand that that creates fears, that people are worried that somehow the familiar is changing, that you know, you've got people moving in next door, you've got uh, all sorts of bad things that could happen, but they're not seeing the good things, which is you know, which are in, in include much lower costs for basic consumer goods, much lower costs for electronics, more flexibility, more ability to move around. Having said that, I do understand that some people have lost out in this, that there are some people who've lost their jobs, whose wages uh, haven't grown, who are feeling like they're losers in a world that has changed faster than they're able to adapt. And that's a real issue. And I think that's something that politicians haven't taken into account enough. And I believe that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a Brexit and the populism we're seeing other places and why we got Trumpism, frankly. Yeah, well, there was sort of, especially in, in, in Britain and I suppose in America as well, uh, you know, there was a, a big um, political movement to blame a lot of the issues. Things like austerity were blamed on immigrants rather than the government policies. And it was a lot of finger pointing to, to direct blame away from where the, the politics was actually coming from. Um, and, and I wondered as well, you know, one of the things I really liked about your, uh, one of the many things I really liked about your book, but you're actually quite positive about on uh about the internet um and you were quite hopeful that uh that it could kind of um move beyond the the rather grim aspects of it um but i wondered if that's also a big part as to why people have such visceral reactions um to some of the kind of nationalistic politics because it's very different to say you traveling and living somewhere and understanding a place and, and knowing the people there. If all you're seeing is a, a little post about somewhere you've never been before with facts on it that probably aren't true. Yeah. Well, the internet is uh, definitely uh, one of the huge factors that has contributed to the rise of populism and the rise of this sort of anti-immigrant and the spread of it sentiment. In these are age old fears and concerns, which is nothing new. But the internet has, has been like an accelerator, an amplifier of a lot of this. And you can get out your poisonous talk much more quickly and much more broadly than you could uh, when you were just sitting in the pub and moaning and groaning, right? So that's definitely one of the issues. At the same time, one of the points I make in the book is that the internet and social media have also fundamentally changed the nature of identity and belonging because you're no longer limited to having your community in the local pub or in the local village or whatever, but actually you tap into a worldwide community of people who share your interests. So if you're interested in Latvian folk dancing, you know, you can sit in your, in, in your home in Wales and, and tap away, right? So there is, a, there is an incredible opening here. And I think the idea of belonging and identity have fundamentally changed as a result of this because you are no longer limited by your borders, by your national identity. So one of the points I think that you certainly need to think about is is to to what extent does national identity really matter anymore? Has it changed? Or is your Facebook password more important than your passport? Yes, that's a very good point. And I love that you, you come up with Latvian folklore, uh, folk dancing as your prime example. I wonder if that's one of your <laughs> favourite searches. <laughs> that came out very quickly. <laughs> I have to I'm not a great Latvian. I have been 
I've been to Latvia and I must say it's pretty impressive to watch these people kind of in full swing. I was just, I was very impressed that was your first option to go to. Um, I will I will be googling it after we speak. Um, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, you, you talk that. In your 30 years as a journalist, you say in the book that you feel like the global stage has actually changed very little in terms of there's still conflict, there's still censorship, there's still uh, oppression in certain places. Um, and, and I wondered if, does that, I suppose that's a rather bleak way to look at it, but does that give you optimism that everything kind of remains the same, no matter how bad it gets, we'll still be in the same place? Or does it, or maybe does it cause an apathy that it's impossible to change much? Um you know, but also, I mean, earlier in our interview, you said that things have changed in certain places. So I wondered how you, how it places you in looking at the world in in a particularly a year like this, where everything seems rather miserable. Well, there's of course that famous French saying, which is "plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose." You know, basically, it doesn't matter how much everything changes; it stays the same. And to a certain extent, that is indeed what I say in the book. But of course, uh, things have changed massively um, in the sense that. Uh, the Berlin Wall came down, uh, a billion people came out of poverty, as I mentioned, and we've been able to move around. But what hasn't changed, and what actually in some ways has got worse, is the sense of closing in on yourself, holding in, resorting to almost a, a kind of a crude tribalism, frankly, and this idea of national exceptionalism. Uh, that hasn't changed, and we've seen that after the Berlin Wall came down, or as the Berlin Wall was coming down, people were predicting the end of history, the famous book by Francis Fukuyama, and that somehow conflict would go, and that would be the end of that, and we'd all live happily ever after. And George Bush at the time saying a new world order. There isn't a new world order. There's still NATO, and uh, and you know, the uh, the Russians are still the bad guys, and now we've got new bad guys, the Chinese, um, and the geopolitical scene is still very tense, and perhaps even more tense than it has been for a while. So on a world stage, we're seeing not any advance. On a, on a national and a national identity stage, we're also not seeing much change. I mean, I, I lived through the, the war in Yugoslavia when you had this national exceptionalism being massively out of control and you know, terrible bloodshed happening there. And so that's why I look at the world today and I worry that we don't understand how dangerous the situation is that we're in and that if you let the demons out as Brexit did or as Trump has done, uh, can you can you control them? Can you tame them all or do they come back? And, and How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We'll be back with Peter in a minute, but first... It was the spending review last week, which means Rishi Sunak got to have loads of promotional photos of him pretending to be all everyday person, just like you and me. Even though in them he was wearing a shirt and tie under the hoodie he'd clearly been told to put on, which absolutely no one does. How is that comforting? That's like wearing trousers under your pants. While he sat in a massive, massive office too, you know, like we all have. I'm fairly certain his entire understanding of how normal folks are is based on pictures suggested in the Instagram search function and absolutely nothing else. I'd almost bet money on Rishi Sunak's next set of pictures being him doing a yoga pose or something he's cooked before dressing up a cute dog to announce a series of budget cuts that will be really rough. Anyway, I don't need to tell you that last week's spending review was another awkward 25 minutes of Sunak appearing like that sixth former that thinks the best way to get friends is to pay for their lunch and then maybe they won't find excuses to leave so quickly. What I do need to tell you, I mean, I don't need to, but I have to fill this bit with something, right? I mean, what I do need to tell you is that I've just had a really good mince pie, but that's not very helpful, is it? I just needed you to know. What I will tell you is a few things to know about what Sunak Dunn said. Uh, first up is growth, uh, which is more the opposite of growth. Shrinking, that's it. Uh, the economy is doing a full-on Benjamin Button, and we're nearly in the being jammed back up its own whole stage. Things weren't this fucked since everyone was wearing wigs and stockings. I mean, the 1700s, not the last episode of RuPaul's Drag Race. And that's mostly because, thanks to old Covid, there hasn't really been an economy this year, and there's not really anything anyone's been able to do about that, despite Rishi's attempts for people to nosh off and cause more coughs, or whatever it was. The Chancellor said it'll be end of 2022 before the economy is back to where it was earlier this year, when it was already slowing, as though just waiting to die. We just didn't know what of at the time and expected it was Brexit. But oh no, surprise, a pandemic won by an uncovered nose. There had been warnings that basically things will be shit until at least 2025, and that's not including Brexit stuff because, well, Sunak didn't bother. Though the Bank of England also didn't explicitly mention it in their predictions earlier in the month either, and have just said that a no deal would cost even more than Covid, so I guess they're waiting to see exactly which historical time we can send the economy back to next. This is why there's also been cray-cray levels of borrowing, which amongst the highest in peacetime. If you don't count the war we're having against this virus, am I right? Ah, no, sorry, it's not a war, is it, if we put everyone on the front line with no defences and then invite it in when it arrives? Anyway, borrowing is going to be high for ages, uh, and what that probably means is that we'll all be blamed for it, get told we've used up our credit card limits again, and then everyone will have to pay it back because it's our fault that a pangolin had a shit day back in January. 
Speaking of which, that's why public sector pay is paused, with the exception of nurses whose pay was already shit enough to make clapping seem patronising, and doctors. Instead, to ensure fairness between the public and private sectors, all other public sector workers have to lose money, which they then can't spend on private sector things, which will then mean they take another hit, which Sunak will then punish public sector workers on, which will then mean they spend even less money on private sector goods, and so on and so on, until the only person in all of the UK with cash is Rishi Sunak's wife, and she buys everything and puts it in a museum, like the collector in Guardians of the Galaxy. National living wage is increasing to £8.91 for over 21s, which according to the Living Wage Foundation is still under a wage that people could actually live on. The minimum for the whole country should be £9.50 or £10.85 for London, because that'll maybe buy you one beer. But to bring it up to that, Rishi Sunak would be allowing people to live, and that would not be fair on everyone who's died. Overall unemployment is predicted to rise to 7.5%, which is absolutely loads, but Sunak has promised job creation for 50,000 new nurses and in lots of public sector work up north, so even more people can go from earning nothing to having to leave the house to not earn enough to live. Exciting. Meanwhile, legacy benefits, which are claimed by around 2 million people, many of whom are sick or with disabilities, they're only being raised by 37p a week next April, which is a rise of 0.5% and not enough for anyone to do anything with apart from take it out in coins and flick them at the Chancellor's face. In comparison, universal credit has risen by £20 a week and the state pension went up by 2.5%. So why do people who are sick get so little in comparison? And why is it Sunak lowering the wages of everyone who's not sick or on benefits for fairness? Oh, actually, I suppose in a way, with public sector pay freezes, he is. OK, I really shouldn't give him any ideas. The fact is, it's shitty. So that's 2 million people ignored, plus the 3 million excluded from all COVID support still. Imagine having 5 million people think you're a dick and you haven't even released an awful song or done a dance about racism on the telly. Despite all that, departmental spending is going up by 3.8%, which is why this isn't a return to austerity, because austerity punished people and government departments, but this time it's only people. So, so that's nice. The government are planning to match EU regional development funding post-Brexit, and they're increasing the school's budget and health budget. And that's on top of the 55 billion coronavirus support, some of which is also going to those areas. And that's a really good thing, but as we've seen this year, it could just mean that all that money is going to a friend of Sunak's who's never seen a school or healthcare before and spends all the cash on some fish and someone called Heath. Then there's the overseas budget cut, which has peed off a lot of Conservative MPs, as well as all the other parties, but this won't go through without a vote, so there's a chance that Sunak will have to backtrack. He says that it will go back to 0.7% when the fiscal situation allows, so I'm guessing the plan is for around 2040. Still, it does fit with our current status of global Britain, which isn't really about us having a bigger place in the world, but just our entire world being here because we can't afford to go anywhere else. And lastly, the supposed levelling up fund, where there'll be £100 billion total investment in infrastructure by next year, with a £4 billion fund for any local area to bid on for nice local projects, you know, for local people. Thing is, with so many cuts to local government in the last 10 years, £4 billion of funding won't go very far in very many places. Plus, there's always a high chance that the only places that will get it will be wherever Robert Jenrick has a friend who he can award it to. An infrastructure bank that the Chancellor said will be in place by next spring also sounds quite good, but it will need to focus on and properly invest in new technology and net zero projects, whereas it's hard not to assume it'll just be a place for Richard Desmond to have coffee while he gets discounts on building flammable cupboards for people to squeeze into. So that was it. Uh, That was the spending review. It's not austerity. Remember that. It's not austerity because austerity means everything is screwed. Uh, But with this, only a lot of things are screwed until 2025, unless you've got more money than the Queen. But it's okay because the Chancellor understands. He understands you. He understands 
understands me. And he'll prove it to you by doing a dancing challenge while applying makeup and lip syncing to Top Loader while posting the words levelling up 600 times in flashing letters as you try to work out if a 37p top up is enough data to write all the worst swear words in the comments underneath. Because if it is, that's totally worth it. And now, back to Peter. And your book uh, was written before the US election. And I wondered, has Joe Biden's win made you feel differently about the current state of things? Um, because I personally, one of my concerns, I, I was, and obviously I was very pleased uh, as someone that, that definitely couldn't stand Trump. But, but, you know, one of my worries is, will Biden change anything that would stop another Trump happening in the future? And I, I wondered how, how you felt about it. Well, I think the uh, genie is out of the bottle, if you like, uh, that uh, essentially Trump will you know, no longer be president, although you know, no one's quite convinced him of that yet. But, uh, <laughs> but Trumpism will live on. But uh, the attacks uh, to the institutions that's happened under Trump, uh, the, 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 the disparaging of the press as the enemy of the people, the undermining of the Constitution where possible, uh, all these things will live on and will remain. And it's the same with, with Brexit in the sense that you've got a country divided. And uh, even if uh, an after Brexit has happened, there will still be half the country or more, even if you believe the opinion polls, that you still violently think it's a bad idea. Not violently, but still passionately think it's a bad idea. And so what you're left with is a tremendous amount of divisiveness uh, and social social tensions, frankly. And that is difficult. Even with Joe Biden, he's coming in, he's going to say, hey, you know, let's get decency back, let's get civilization back, let's be nice to each other. And half the country will say, oh, yeah, right. And that's the problem. Um, so how do you overcome these tensions? That's the huge challenge. I don't want to be too negative at the same time. I think we are also living in a time of incredible progress. I mean, look at the speed in which science has developed a vaccine to essentially deal with a problem we didn't know existed a year ago. It's amazing. And look at the way that uh, our own uh, well-being and, and the potential for our well-being has improved. So I think from a, from a materialist and from a technological point of view, I think things are going you know, really well in the right direction most of the time. But the problem is we have got these demons out there and we haven't found a way to tame them, frankly. And what we're seeing in the UK, uh, you know, with just to finish up with Boris Johnson, uh, essentially, you know, riding rough uh, and loose over the you know, British law and international law now, um, and also falling into the same sort of Trumpian, you know, the press are enemies of the people and anybody who disagrees with me, you know, is, is, is a fraudster. These are really dangerous tendencies and it harks back to, what my grandparents lived through in the thirties, right? And are you, are you worried about Brexit still? Uh, again, I mean, not much has changed since your book was written. We're still in the state of there might be a deal, there might not be a deal. But I, I wondered how you're feeling. I mean, you yourself are now uh, sort of secure from it uh, with your with your German passport, which I'm very jealous of. Um, but I, I wondered if you're feeling again, if if you're feeling a bit more positive about it, you know that that something might work out, or if you've removed yourself from it are you, do, you, have you, have you, do you care anymore <laughs> now that you're now that you're able to travel where you like <laughs> yeah no I, I do care and I do care very much and actually that's you know really why I wrote this book because uh, I felt like I had become an orphan you know, I, I couldn't be 
both British and European. And from my perspective, uh, Brexit, whether there's a deal or not, is terrible news for the UK. It's going to be really bad um, over the long term. It's going to be very bad for Britain on the world stage. I mean, what's interesting about Joe Biden is he has made it very clear that uh, he thinks Brexit's a bad idea. Um, and his new Secretary of State is also on the record saying Brexit's a terrible idea. Um, so, um, so I think from a you know Britain on a world stage point of view is bad. I think also Britain from a soft power point of view about the influence of Britain, the attractiveness of Britain, that is also going to wane. I mean, doing a campaign which basically says we're proud of ending freedom of movement uh, and not taking into account the incredible contributions uh, of uh, the many of the three and a half million Europeans living in the UK many of whom are uh, you know, teachers at universities or bankers uh, and who are re- or working in the NHS who are really contributing to life in Britain. All that is going to lead to Britain in a much reduced and diminished state, sadly. And that gives me no pleasure at all, actually. That, it makes me sad. But it's going to happen. And I think if there's no deal, the pain is quicker and worse. If there is a deal, the pain is still there. Well, I, I don't know... Uh... Alvin, just when did you start researching your family's history? Because I know you talk in the book about uh, you, you did as a teenager, you took a lot more interest in your uh, sort of German uh, Jewish heritage. But I, I wondered, was it, uh, um, was it for, the, for the base of this book that you started looking into it a lot more? Yeah, because when I uh, applied for a German passport after Brexit, I had to provide documentation. And I do actually have boxes of, of papers which were sort of sitting in the garage, which I had, you know, I, I collected when my, my parents, my grandparents died, thinking that one day, you know, I would go through them. And, and I, I sort of had flicked through them, but not really. And then when I needed to find the birth and death certificates of, uh, you know, generations back, I started sifting through those documents and found a lot of really interesting and, 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 and troubling things and, and horrible things, frankly, um, and lots of swastika stamps on, you know, official documents and, and my grandparents having to register at the Registry office with new middle names of Sarah and Israel, and um, and all the stress uh, and pain that they went through, um, including most interestingly and most most uh, movingly letters that my grandfather wrote in 1938 to friends and colleagues in Britain, saying, "You know, get me out of here. Can you help?" Um, and fortunately, someone came through again without wanting to give away the plot of the book, um, but um, but. So I, I I did do some digging, and the more digging I did, the more interesting it was. And um, and I think uh, what I came away with overall is this sense that identity is and belonging are incredibly precious, but they're also incredibly precarious. I mean, my grandparents didn't that they were in danger until they were. Um, I had never even dreamed that I would become a German citizen until Brexit happened. And suddenly that challenged my very sense of identity, my sense of self. And I think that perhaps is the biggest message I I hope to convey, which is that you shouldn't take anything for granted. You need to fight for the principles and the values you believe in and that citizenship is not so much a geography, a geographical concept it's much more a concept of value and values. It's 
It's where do you find the tolerance? Where do you find the respect and the common decency? And that is the most precious thing of all, frankly. I also just wondered if, um, perhaps not even in terms of your own writing, but with when you're reading other journalists' writing, as someone with, with your experience, you know, it, does it make you sort of aware of how important putting humanity and, and human stories is into things? Because I, I think, as I said, that one of the main things that really touched me in the book is hearing the effect that the benefits of immigration have had on your on your family's history and and where you are now and you might not be here and it had none of that been available. And, um, you know, I think a lot of, from my point of view, a lot of journalism I read is now, uh, without being too disparaging, but is often a headline is maybe facts. And sometimes I feel like that human story can really have a bigger effect. Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, if you read the headline that says, uh, you know, Brexit will reduce GDP by 6% over the next 20 years. Uh, you know, that doesn't exactly excite you or, or give you any sense of what it actually really means in terms of you know, the emotional and human impact. And I think that is something that you, you know, we all need to stress is the emotional and human impact. And it's interesting, already in the last two and a half years, just to see how European citizens in the UK have felt that their situation has changed and they feel aggrieved and unloved and not, you know, not recognised for the very real contribution they're making. So it's already started this human part, and uh, it's going to carry on. I'm, I'm convinced of that. And uh, and in terms of inspiration, you know, when you when you look at the human stories, those are the ones that endure. Something that I, it's a work I actually quote in the in, in the book. It, there's a there's a, a German writer called Stefan Zweig who committed suicide in 1942. Who wrote a autobiography just before he did that called The World of Yesterday, in which he describes growing up in Vienna in the late 19th century at a time very similar to our own in which there was, it seemed, incredible technological progress. Things were getting better. People would be more prosperous. There was almost like a mini globalization going on. There were newfangled things out there like cars and the streets and electric lights. And he writes about how there was this idea that this was incredible and life was only going to get better and nothing would ever be bad again and within 20 30 years you had you know, the collapse of the austro-hungarian empire two world wars and then this sentence of barbarism that was nazism and and so i think you know those are the stories that resonate because you can see how people's lives can be fundamentally turned upside down um, by these political actions, which are not about GDP, but are about human lives and human human success and human pain. Very important question would be, you've got your German passport now, you're living in Paris, uh, you, you are from England, but with a, a German heritage. Where do you feel like you're from? Do you feel like you belong anywhere? Well, I do. I feel, uh, I feel, I mean, uh, I hate to use the phrase, but I feel like a citizen of everywhere um, in the sense that, yes, I am undoubtedly still very British, quintessentially British, my Americans tell me, my American friends tell me that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Marmite-loving Monty Python and a tea addict, um, fond of fair play. Uh, I don't do understatement as perhaps I, as often as I should. But so I feel, you know, very much British in, in many ways. But I also feel that, that very European, it's part of my heritage, it's part of my family story. But it's also part of my own mindset. I feel very comfortable in, in Europe. Uh, 
there is so having a German passport is is interesting and and actually it's quite new and and when I use it uh, I sometimes when I started using it certainly I started thinking oh this is odd and how weird this is but actually I've got used to it and it's nice it's good it feels it feels right it feels that I can be British and I can be German I can be European and I can balance both and that's that's fantastic so in that sense I'm really lucky uh, and I I you know I never stop saying thank you because I do have this ability to, to have multiple national identities along with all my interests. And that's a very privileged situation. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the book as well. As I said, I, I really did enjoy it. It was a really, uh, really gripping read for, for a few hours last week. Um, and I just, uh, last question, which is something that I ask all the guests on here with the hope of furthering good information, really, um, which is apart from yourself uh, and your writing, um, which writers and journalists and websites would you recommend that people seek out? Where do you go to for your trusted information? Gosh, uh, I go to a lot of places. <laughs> I, um, I, I read voraciously. I always have. Um, and I try to, I try to get a, a wide variety of sources because one of the problems today with social media is that the way that these algorithms work is you end up only reading people you agree with. And that's not at all. That's one of the problems, actually. You need to read people you don't agree with. But I think um, I, I like, obviously, I read the, you know, a lot of newspapers, both British, uh, American and, and continental European papers. Uh, I particularly like uh, certain people in the Financial Times. I like uh, Philip Stevens and Martin Wolf. I think they write great stuff. Um, I find uh, some very, very bright and interesting voices in academic circles. Timothy Garton Ash uh, on Europe is fantastic. Jonathan Porter's at the LSE and Simon Ren Lewis at, at Oxford are really good. And they have blogs and they tweet and they, they do a lot on social media. Uh, I'm also very interested in technology and the intersection between technology and society. And there's some great people out there writing publicly, including uh, Eric Brinelson, who is uh, an MIT professor and a former colleague and a great friend of mine, Cara Swisher, who now does, a, who's been doing a podcast for quite a while and, uh, and actually now does one for the New York Times. She's great. She's the toughest interviewer I've ever come across. She's uh, she's as tough as steel. Uh, not, not against you. You're a very nice interviewer. <laughs> me already. A lot spat me out a few few times. Um, and uh, and finally, uh, I mean, well, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote that mom's book, Sapiens. You know, he writes um, a lot of things, and I read him on everything. So I, you know, very wide-ranging, not just one country, not just one viewpoint, but uh, as broad as I can make it. Thank you lots to Peter for that. Um, his book is called Citizens of Everywhere, um, and I really, really did enjoy it. It's sort of more of an essay, really, or a short read, so it's very much a good way to spend an afternoon. Uh, it's published by House Publishing, and you can get it at bookshops of various moralities. Um, and Peter is on Twitter at Peter Gumble. His website is petergumble.com, and he's also written a number of books about the French education system, as well as many, many articles as a journalist for many publications. Uh, also, a very big thank you to Asha at House Publishing for arranging our chat, too. Who next to get on this show? What other things shall I ask someone about? Let me know at Parbobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can put Nadim Zawahi in charge of getting the message to me, meaning it will likely never ever see the light of day and I won't even be aware it existed. So, as always, probably just best to email, isn't it? <laughs> 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast, which means it's time for the Parpolbro Hot Podcast Fact, uh, with Oliver Dowden not understanding how television drama works, which TV show has caused the most upset with MPs. Well, it's probably one of my favourite comedy shows ever, Brasside by Chris Morris, which caused massive outrage with the Peter Geddon episode they did, receiving the most complaints of a TV show at the time. Then Minister for Child Protection and always, oh no, she was left too near a radiator, Beverly Hughes, said it was unspeakably sick. Even though, you know, she said that out loud, so it's definitely speakably sick, at the very least. What's odd about Hughes is she was upset by a comedy show about the media coverage of paedophilia, but at the same time very happy to serve in a cabinet with real-life goomba Margaret Hodge, who as a counsellor enabled paedophile rings in Islington to happen for many years by denying it was going on, saying the children were liars and refusing to give any police help. But what about those comedy shows, eh? Awful things, and that's why comedians should always be judged more harshly than the people that run the country or something. Anyway, that's this week's Pop Bro Hot Podcast Fact. If you enjoy this show or are very happy to put up with it and you've nothing better to do, then please tell everyone you've ever known to like, subscribe, listen, repeat every word but in a sinister voice and maybe scrawl it repeatedly on the walls where you live and when you're found, I'll deny all knowledge of telling you to do such things and everyone will think you're obsessed and I'll get a detaining order made. Sorry, I mean, please spread the word, review the show on your favourite podcast apps if you can and if you so fancy, chuck a quid or two at the Kofi Patreon or ACOS supporter pages. Huge thanks to Acast, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. This will be back next week when Boris Johnson announces that every constituency that had an MP that voted against the new restrictions will now be in Tier 3 until he stops being miffed at them. Before other MPs criticise him for childish behaviour and he Tier 3s them too, leaving everyone in his constituency of Uxbridge to hold up the entire economy by themselves, which puts too much pressure on the Hillingdon Sports and Leisure Complex and they have to close due to undue stress. Bye... This week's show is sponsored by Rishi's IG Filter Pack. Are you too worried you look too normal in all your profile pictures? Do you wish people saw you and assumed you have the sort of money that means you can't operate in normal situations? Rishi's filters will take your normal pictures and change your expression so it looks like you've had to shake a poor person's hand and you can't stop feeling ill. Having a cup of tea, Rishi's tea style will superimpose a fancy reusable cup that costs more than most people's homes. Want to show everyone just how much you like pubs? Using these filters, anything that looks like a pub will be removed and replaced with your fully kitted out home bar where you've poured a pint of what looks like rabies froth because usually your butler does that for you. Rishi's filters to show everyone that you're just like them, you know, if their wives earn more than the queen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.